This is Dr. Cesar Lever with another episode of the Way to College podcast. And, uh, you know, you've, you've, if you've been an avid listener or subscriber of the podcast, you've heard me talk about how much of a blessing this podcast is. And, and really it is. And it is a humbling experience to just have the opportunity to connect with folks. But more importantly, I think to to have created this space where folks are open and they share their stories with me. Um, that is, is a, a privilege that is not lost on me. And so, you know, I'm excited. I'm always excited to connect with folks, especially people that, that maybe I went to school with people that have been a part of my journey, but I get really excited with folks whose stories I know nothing about. And so today's guest is, uh, is one of those individuals. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let her introduce herself to the listeners out there. So Elisa, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you for having me, Jay. Uh, my name is Dr. Elisa Hernandez. I live in Southern California, born and raised. Um, and I am a counseling psychologist who just started a private practice less than a year ago. And so I'm kind of new to small business ownership, entrepreneurship, but I've been a psychologist for over a decade. And so like, that's kind of old bag, but the the business part is new for me. Was it as scary for you as it it, is for me? So scary, so scary. It took much longer than it needed to, to get the courage. And I had to get a coach who was just like, come on, you can do it. But it was terrifying. It's still terrifying, but I'm getting more and more comfortable with it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I know what, what that's like. I'm just having left the university and going on my own. So um, I applaud you. Uh, that's a brave, brave thing to do. So congratulations <laughs> and the uh, best of luck, you know, moving forward. But Elisa, um, and may I call you? May I call you Elisa? Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Um, you know, I ask all my guests, if you had to go and identify a starting point for your educational journey, where would that starting point be for you? Yeah, this is such a hard question. And I've, I've listened to a few of the episodes and I'm always like, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer this question because for me, it feels like it's always like school has always been front and center in my life, in what the plan is for me. And so it always felt like the the communication from my parents was school leads to success. School leads to a better life. And so like you focus your energy there and we'll figure everything out and like everything else out. You just have to worry about that. We, we don't know anything about it, so we can't help you with it. But just like do your work, keep your head down and keep kind of pushing that way. And you said your parents, one of the messages was, right, we we don't know about it, but, yeah. you know, do the work, put your head down. Tell us, give us some context. You know, you said your yeah. parents didn't so, know that. So tell, tell us about your parents. Yeah. So my parents both immigrated, my father from Guatemala and my mom from um, Guadalajara, from Mexico. And so they both immigrated when they were in their like early 20s and met here and started a life together. But they both had around a sixth grade education level. And, you know, they came here, they're working class, trying to figure it out. My mom started out as like a seamstress and a nanny and a bunch of other kind of jobs just to figure it out. But when by the time I came along, 
um, she had been working in um, a grocery store in the bakery department. And so we grew up with health benefits, like health insurance. And like she worked part time my my whole childhood. And but she would work the graveyard shift. So it was like she would get in at three and come out at 11 and she would be there home with us and like transporting us to whatever we needed to transport to during the day. And so we always felt like mom was around, but she was kind of busting her butt to make sure that we had the extra income from her work. And my dad, my dad did a bunch of different things. So when I was really small, he had a really horrible accident at work. He worked in some kind of factory and he had a really bad accident that affected his, um, his leg. And so he wasn't able to do as much like hard labor kinds of work anymore. But I, and I don't even know the story of how he got to the job he got, but he eventually became a supervisor in a furniture factory. Like they would make and sell office furniture. And so he became like a floor supervisor in that job. And so that was the job he had for most of my childhood. And then they went out of business and then he got a bunch of odd jobs, like a delivery person and then a janitor. And so he's just kind of been all over the place. Given your parents' experiences, right? And and sort of the work that they were doing, where where did they get the messaging? Where did they see that, you know what, school's important. If we want our daughter to be successful, this is the road that she has to take. And it, it has to be different from sort of what our experience has been. So did they ever talk to you about that? Like, So they never really went into more detail than like, this is what you have to do. The the story that I've kind of pieced together, you know, like in, in immigrant households, it's hard to get people to talk about their experiences, their thoughts, beliefs, and all of that. And so the pieces that I've gleaned together are both my parents are extremely bright and would have wanted to be in school longer, to study more. But for my mom, she needed to, she had like a very complicated family situation and so she needed to work and she needed to start contributing to the family and the opportunity for her to continue school wasn't really there she actually only learned to read and write because a um like a vecina a neighbor who was a retired school teacher saw her kind of in the street and brought her under her wing and was like, what, what are you doing? What's going on? Where are your parents? And she was just like, I don't know. I'm just trying to get food <laughs> and like uh, make sure that like my sister's okay. And she was like, well, I'm going to teach you how to read and write. And so she was able to teach my mom like those foundational skills. And she wouldn't have necessarily had access to that in, in the way that it was like very tailored and very um, specific to her growing up and and my dad you know like he also like you know it's a it's a common story like he had fin- like family responsibilities and he needed to contribute financially and there was a lot of complications there as well but i remember him when he the stories right because we i don't really remember a lot of when i was very young or before um but he had this briefcase where he went to drafting school here like he took drafting classes. And so we knew of this briefcase that it existed and we would look at it and there'd be all these like little 
plastic like graph things and we're like what is this and he's like oh those are like from my drafting days <laughs> and we're like what are you talking about your drafting days and it was just like this little briefcase that had all these technical things in it that he was like really proud of but it didn't go anywhere because he couldn't pursue that because he needed to earn more money than taking classes I love that story. One, well, both stories, right? Your mother's story, your mother's experience. Um, and, and it reminds me, I've heard countless stories now and everybody's different, right? But there are pieces that where there are these similarities and whether it's, it's, you know, in your mother's case, this retired teacher who took the time to teach her to read, right? Um, is somebody that that comes into our lives right that where it's i don't know happenstance it's fortune right that we're lucky we're at the right place the right time right um and and how then that sort of creates this domino effect right the importance of of reading and of literacy right things like that and then your father's story about the briefcase and you know and and I, I'm going to ask for a little clarification. When you were asking him about the briefcase, how old were you? Do you remember that? Oh, young, young, okay. probably like seven, eight. Like it was this mystery briefcase that we had no idea, like why it was there, or like what it meant, or how yeah. it how it was part of his life history. But it was just like cool for us. Um, and I asked because you know I'm always. <laughs> It intrigues me when, you know, like you shared, right, for immigrant parents, they they keep a lot. They don't share a lot, maybe about the early experiences and things. Um, and I've heard that. Um, I've heard sort of the opposite in some cases where parents are like very deliberate about this is what I experienced. And I do not want you to have this experience, right? But that where your father has this briefcase and it's almost like this, yeah, like my own little secret. This is something that I attempted to do or that I did, but I had to set it aside because of these other things, these other sacrifices that I had to make. And so I, I, I can see right in this conversation that we're having these little pieces that we're putting together and and to see why your parents would emphasize education, right? For, for your mother, the power that being literate provides to her, for your father, the sacrifices that he had to make so that he couldn't pursue that, right? Now, for you, what were your early educational experiences like? Yeah, I'm like very grateful for my early educational experiences. I think like I am a, a very diligent person and a rule follower and very obedient. So teachers loved me. Teachers absolutely loved me. <laughs> and, you know, like I... I did what I was supposed to, and I did it well, and I did it on time. So from very early on in my schooling, I was identified as somebody who was like a high achiever, who was somebody who was bright. And I got a lot of benefits because of that. I got extra attention. I got extra opportunities. And it was just this, a lot of push into the next thing and the next thing, because I always had that adult teacher support. Um, I totally resonate with that. 
<laughs> I was uh, so so in my spare time, uh, and part of my work is is I, I will do um, like college counseling, and so over the summer I've been helping a bunch of students um, just navigate right that that college essay. And so one of the students I'm working with is talks about that she's a rule follower and she's looking forward to college because she said she that she's she's excited about breaking free of that of kind of like this is being in lockstep this is what i'm supposed to do and i'm really good at that but i'm intrigued about what that this other you know the potential behind there and and like you i think i was the same way i was very much i didn't want to get in trouble and and i think you I don't know for you, I know certainly for me and, and, and you can, you can echo this or, or, or maybe your experience was different, but when you, when you see those opportunities afforded to you, because you're a good student, because you don't give teachers any problems, right? It's, you want more of that. At least I did. I was like, Oh yeah. It's, it's the gold star. It's the, it's so rewarding to be like, to get the praise, to get the reward to, and, and even like aside from just the, the goldfish aspect of it, of just like, give me the lever, give me, give me the palette. It, there's also for me developed and still exist this very clear process of there is a way to do things where you get a positive result. And so it created this expectation in me that things are very linear, that there's a rubric, there's a syllabus, there's you follow it and then you get the A. Like it's not hard. You just do what it tells you to do and then you get the gold star and everything is great with the world. And that is something that I'm still trying to dismantle <laughs> for my adult life. <laughs> what? Why? Why? Why dismantle? Why oh, do you say because that? Because the world does not work that way, my friend. And I think, like, we'll probably be jumping around a little bit, but for me, I lived in that reality most of my life until I struggled with infertility, and then I was like, crap. Mm-hmm. That was like the real blow to reality of like, you don't control everything. You can still do everything right and not get the outcome you want. And so like that was a time in my life where everything kind of got turned on its head and it was just like, oh, this is all a lie. And really trying to figure out like, okay, so like, what do I, what do I dig into? What do I anchor in if it's not follow A, B, C and you get D? Elisa, thank you for that. And and I, and I'm serious. Thank you because because I think so much about the podcast and the reason I created it was because so many of my students were coming to the university with that mindset. This is this is I've I've been a good student and I've done everything that's asked of me. And and is this it? Like this is it. This is. Um, or am I going to do this for the rest of my life? Am I going to do this career or whatever it is? And I remember thinking senior year at Stanford, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was so afraid I stayed for a fifth year (laughs) because I didn't have a job and because I didn't have it figured out. And so, you know, I told my students, 
I said that that's just not the way the world works. And I think the sooner you see that, the better, um, the, the sooner you accept that, the better. Right. And, and not to say that things don't work out for you. Right. But just be prepared. And how do you handle, right. The challenges, the setbacks. Um, and also the idea that if you're at 18, 19, and you know what you're going to do for the rest of your life, that is, is rare. Uh, I, I think, um, I've done now, I don't know what number interview this is, honestly, right? Like 120. And of the 120, I'd say six, seven, maybe of my guests are doing what they set out to do at 18, 19. Well, now you have none. So sorry to bring up <laughs> <off> the street. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. It's in, it's keeping it's it's in keeping with that, right? But so, but thank you for for being so honest and for saying right, like you know, dismantling that the need to dismantle that. And I think because, like a lot. Yeah. Go ahead. Like as a as a little bit of a of a clarification, I think like for me, and this is not true for everybody, but this is this was my experience. Like for me, that formula works for school. That mm-hmm. formula works for academia. That formula does not work for life. And I had been in school until I was like 28 years old. <laughs> so it was like most of my life was like, yeah, cool. This is working <laughs> until it didn't because it's like life is more than just your career. Life is more than just school. And when I had to face those realities, that's when it was like, okay, like, this formula that I was holding onto so tightly isn't actually like applicable in these other settings. And so I have to figure out how to make peace with that. Uh, Well, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So let's backtrack a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. And you said you were, you're going to be number eight or nine, right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You, you, so how early, how early, you know, early on, how early was it that you were able to say, I want to do this. And what was this? What was this? Yeah, I think it was. It was. um, Maybe my senior year of high school. So like, I'm also part of the stereotype whose parents were like, you're just going to be a lawyer because my mom said I'm very argumentative and stubborn and so she saw me being a lawyer in the future and I was like no I don't want to do that that sounds like the most boring thing in the world um because I like to end my arguments with just like because I said so (laughs) I don't like to have actual evidence for my arguments um but in in high school I was able to take a psychology course and it was a lot of like you know like the most fun parts of psychology of all the social psych and I was like oh that's so interesting and all the experiments that they were doing and so I was like yeah okay like I want to be I want to major in psychology and then when when I got there and I started taking classes I still loved it I was still really interested in it I was really interested in social psychology I still am. So like I'll read things in that field and be very interested in them. But the more classes I took, the more I got frustrated with like, but social psychology is mostly just telling us what's wrong with the world. Like it's not really giving us a map to fix it. It's just saying like, oh yeah, people are awful. And we know why they're awful because of obedience, because of social conformity, because of all these things. And I was like, well, that's just really depressing. (laughs) 
How do we work for change? How do we understand these things and then implement them or implement strategies to affect change? And I wasn't really seeing that in any of the classes that I took. It was a lot of just like history or like why we know what we know. And so then I started thinking like, well, the way that I can kind of be an agent of change in this field is to go more of the the clinical psychology, the counseling psychology route of doing therapy. And it will be, and it's still in my mind thinking like, oh, I wanted to do something on a community level, mm-hmm. but n- not really understanding a lot about graduate programs or things like that. So it was just like, I want to be able to affect change. And right now, the main way I see that people do that is by doing therapy. Yeah, as a high school student, you're on this path. You're doing, you're good at school. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're looking at college, obviously college is, is given the, the push from your parents, but also your traits, your characteristics, right? Um, you're studious, you're a good student. So college obviously is is on your path. You're also though a first generation student, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. What was the experience? What was that experience like of applying to colleges for you? So I in in my high school we had. Um, Uh, the honors program like most high schools do but it was basically we would do all our classes with the same 30 40 people for all of our classes and so I wouldn't really see more than these 30 40 people every day all day in high school and so we got really close and and most of us if not all of us were first-gen students and so we all kind of took it as like a group project and so we like bounced ideas off each other, did research. I, with like a couple of my friends, we were in the college counseling center like every day looking at all the books. I had a really close relationship with my college, um, with my school counselor. And so I would go in and chat with him and be like, okay, like this is what I'm thinking. And because I had always gotten this feedback of like, you are, you have potential. I thought very highly of myself and I was like, all right, all these teachers are telling me I have potential. That's it. I'm going to apply to all the Ivy leagues. I'm going to apply to all the best schools. I applied to like 25 schools. I was like, I need to get my bases covered. I need to, and like I had all this information from doing my own research, from being in the college counseling center, from like going to talks, I would like register for talks that I found God knows where. And like, I mean, I still remember the tidbit that I got, it was this place that was offering, like you would pay them and they would help you with the college search process, but they would do like informational meetings. We drove all, so I grew up in Pico Rivera, which is like Southeast LA. We drove all the way to the Orange Orange County to Santa, or to near John Wayne Airport. So it was like an hour away at least to go to this informational meeting. I dragged my parents to it, but they were like, you know, if you if you want to apply to a lot of schools, but there's financial limitations, you can hand write your own fee waiver and so you can say, like, I really want to apply to this school and I don't want finances to get in the way of my opportunity. So if you could please accept this application and waive my my application fee, it would be I would really appreciate it. 
So I applied to like seven additional schools with my handmade fee waiver and all the schools accepted it. And so like, I didn't really like, I was trying to figure out how do I spread as wide a net as possible while when I don't have the funds to apply to all these schools. So much to unpack there. Another theme that I think has emerged in a lot of the folks that I've interviewed talk about sort of seizing their educational future and, and being advocates for themselves. And so, you know, I, I, I just did another interview and, and my, my guest said, you know, she, she needed, she wanted to go to like a, like a charter school or like a magnet school in her district. So as an eighth grader, she was calling the, the district office, like to figure out how do I get, get in there? Um, and she said, because, you know, because she was a first gen student, she often, um, translated for her parents. So she was already used to talking to adults. And so I'm always fascinated by, by you all, by the, the young people or the, the people that I've interviewed that, that sort of seized those, those opportunities and, and made the most of them. Um, so one, yeah, this is incredibly fascinating. Um, two, and I here I'm going to ask you for advice. If because not everybody's like that, right? And and I and I feel like more often than not, the students that I see are really unsure, um, are reluctant to kind of seize that control or that opportunity. But here you are. You have teachers that are telling you you're 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 smart and you're capable and you can do so much, and they're building up your confidence and you're a really good student. Um, what advice would you give somebody who is equally as smart and is a really good student but lacks that confidence, and maybe they, it's keeping them from from applying to competitive schools or even challenging themselves and then stepping out of their comfort zone? What advice would you give them? Well. I think like one one of the pieces that that I would try to like challenge is the like what's it going to cost you? Like what's what's the downside? So you apply, and like if it doesn't cost you anything, like actually financially, and it's like one more question that you're writing. Most colleges now accept the common application, so you really don't have to put in that much extra effort to do it. What what are you so afraid of? that's keeping you from doing that. And if the answer is like, well, what if they say no? Like they're already saying no, if you don't apply. So you're already living with the consequence of a no, but you're denying yourself the opportunity for a yes. And even beyond that, like this won't be the first time that somebody's ever said no to you. It won't be the first time that you've been denied something or that you've been rejected and you've gotten over that. You've been able to lick your wounds and still be standing. And so to believe whether or not you believe in your ability to get accepted, believing your ability to manage the discomfort and the distress that comes from a possible rejection, like you're strong enough to handle that. I love that. It's good advice. You 
apply to 25 schools and you're going to go to Ivy leagues. You're going to be all over the place. (laughs) You decide on Stanford. Well, so that, that is a, a story because I applied to all these Ivy leagues. I got rejected by most of them to be sure, like to be real. I was waitlisted at Columbia, I think, and waitlisted at Yale, maybe, but the rest of them just flat out rejected me. Um, and so I, I had, I had the acceptance from Stanford, and I had a, a, like a solid acceptance from NYU. And in my eighteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old brain, I was like, I want to get as far away from my like city, my family, as possible. Like, and college is the way to do that. College is the ticket to freedom. And so I walk into my counselor's, my college counselor, or like my school counselor's office. And I said, oh, you know, like, I don't know, like what, I, what, what I'm going to decide, you know, like NYU, like I really want to go to the East Coast. I want to go far and like, I can do this with NYU. And my counselor just looks at me and it's like, stop, what are you doing? Stop, you're going to Stanford. Just like, why are you even here? Like, this is not a conversation that we need to have. You need to stop being ridiculous and just go to Stanford. And, and I was just like, yeah, but, and he was like, no, but, and then, and at that point it was still like, we hadn't done, done admit weekend or anything. And so I went to admit weekend and I fell in love and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to Stanford for sure. Like that's the place for me. And I am so thankful that I did not go, <laughs> that I did not like try to go to NYU. I would have hated it. I would have hated being in like the the middle of the city and not had the protective cushion of the Stanford bubble. Like it would have been a disaster. It would have been such a disaster. What was that transition like for you coming from your high school in Pico Rivera to Stanford? You know, like I, I always feel like an odd duck in that I loved I loved school. I loved going, being away from everything I knew and being kind of in this place where I felt like it was validating the, the my shining star. And so like for me, I, I do kind of recognize that I did a few things to prepare myself. Like I, I knew that my high school was not academically rigorous. I knew that. And I knew that there were going to be people uh, at Stanford that had been, have been to very academically rigorous schools whose exposure to academics is very different than mine was and who had many more opportunities than I had. And so I was going in knowing that I'm not going to be the big fish anymore, but that doesn't mean that I'm automatically going to struggle. And so what I did was I walked in and said, I'm going to take the first year however it comes. I'm going to show up. I'm not going to be insecure about my abilities. I'm not going to say like, I can't do this. It's going to be so hard. I'm not going to psych myself out before I get there. I'm just going to get there. I'm going to do me. And then I'm going to see what happens. And if I struggle, then I struggle and I get help. But there's also the possibility that I don't struggle. And so I I wanted to make sure that I gave myself the room for both possibilities mm-hmm. and that I didn't go in already putting myself down or second guessing myself. So that was one of the, the big things that I did. I said, you know, like, I know I might need help. And if I do, I'm going to get it. 
but I also might not need help. So let me just see how it goes. And the other thing that I did is that like, I came from a community that was like 98% Latinx, <laughs> probably like 98% first gen. And so I knew that that's not what the world is and that I was going to be walking to a very different space at Stanford. And I, I wanted that. I really wanted that experience. I wanted to be around people who were completely different than I was. I wanted to make friends from all walks of life. And I was very open to that. And so I didn't go thinking that I needed to have a space that was going to be um, like protective of mm-hmm. my my culture or my values. Because I was like, I have those in me. I'm, I'm looking for something different. I'm looking for something to challenge that. And so my freshman year, like, yeah, there were people that were like, not great, but then I didn't spend time with them. (laughs) And like, I feel like I found a very, very good core group of people my freshman year. And I, I, I hung on to them and they, they were my people. And like, I think back now, like all of the people that were in that first initial group dealt with some kind of adversity were had some kind of like marginalized identity or underrepresented oppressed identity that they were either figuring out and hadn't really been kind of clear to them yet or that they came in with. And so then I was like, oh, because that's what bonded us. That's what connected us is this feeling of like maybe not being a perfect mold to this place, but still being here and belonging. I love that. And I think that's, that's great advice for, for anybody. I mean, particularly for first gen students, but especially for anybody, because I know the first year in college can be um, just overwhelming, right? um, You're worried, you're, you're, you, you know, questioning whether or not you belong. And so I love the approach that you took and, and I feel like that's, that's in keeping with you and who you are, you know, it it sounds like you, you know, very confident, right. You're applying to all of these schools and even, um, you know, and, and, and like you said, right. We all, we all experience a rejection, but you also got into a lot of schools and you also got into Stanford. So, um, I think that approach can be incredibly helpful for students. You, um, you find community. And I think, you know, I, I know for me, that was really important early on when I got there was finding community. And so I found community in my dorm. And then, and, and I, I don't know about you. I didn't sort of, I didn't find my way to the Latino community to El Centro or anything like that till sophomore year. And, and for me, it was deliberate because I think like you, I was coming from a school that was 98, 99% Latino. Um, I was coming from the U.S.-Mexico border, and I just wanted something different. I just needed to see and experience something different because like you, I knew the world didn't look like that. Um, what advice would you give somebody who is reluctant? And I, and I say that because... Uh, you know, and, and at the institution where I still teach at part time, so many of our students are, are struggle with that. They struggle with finding a community, right? What advice would you give somebody who is in that sort of in that just experiencing that where they're struggling to find community? I think one one of the things that I think about is 
you are more than just one piece. And so like when you think about the the pie, the like the pie graph of yourself, there's a lot of different things in there. And so if you go in thinking, I got to find people or community that matches just this one's life, it's going to be really hard. But if you go in thinking like, I can connect on any one of these slices. And so let me see what our points of connection are and not how you don't fit this one slice in particular. And I, like, I think for me, that was that was what was guiding me in making friends and creating community is like, we might not have the same experiences or come from the same backgrounds, but there's something about the way we see the world or there's something about the way we are what we value or what's important to us that is similar. So I'm going to focus on that. Obviously, like if people are explicitly harming the other parts of your past, (laughs) those are not great people to be around. (laughs) But it's this, like, it doesn't have to be a perfect match for you to have connection with someone. And so I think that would be my advice is to figure out like, what are the points of connection? How can you feel close to somebody, even if it's not going to be a hundred percent perfect match. I love that because I think our first instinct is to find those people that are a perfect match. Right. And so I love that. And, and, um, you know, I'm sure that's going to, I hope, I hope that our listeners, right. The, the college students, maybe the folks that are in high school that are getting ready to go to college, that they'll keep that in mind as they look to, and, and, and I, I don't know, I, I, with a lot of the students that I work with, they're, they feel like they don't need to build community, but I know, um, like you said, finding community was, was critical for you. Right. I know it was critical for me. You, um, you were one of, one of my rare guests who knew early on what you wanted to do. And so tell us about that. Tell us about how that impacted your experience at Stanford. Yeah. So I, I want to say a little bit more about that because it wasn't necessarily that I was like in high school thinking I was going to be a psychologist, like a clinical psychologist or a therapist. I, and this is a point I want to say too, like I was very fortunate in that while my parents didn't know how to help me through the college process, they also didn't get in my way. There wasn't anything from them about what I can and can't do about what I should be studying, about what kind of job I'm supposed to have. Uh, There there was like not a lot that they were saying. They were just like, you tell us when you figure it out. Tell us where we're going to drop you off (laughs) was kind of the mentality because it wasn't, they weren't a part of that process. And like probably one of my, if I could do over, I would include them more, but I didn't. And, you know, I was making my own choices. So that was really helpful because then when I got to, when I knew that I enjoyed the field of psychology, I was like, well, this is what I'm going to study. And there wasn't anybody in my environment saying psychology, what are you going to do with that? You can't have a job with that. Like there wasn't any naysayers. They were just like, well, we trust, you know what you're doing. So go ahead and do it. And so that gave me the room and the flexibility to explore what kind of future career or job am I going to create with this interest in psychology? And, you know, 
I've told you that I, like I'm a planner. And so I got to school. It's orientation. I We used to have physical books of, that were called the bulletins that had all the classes and all the times and like the course numbers and when whether they were offered once a year or every year or every other year. And so I sat down with that big bulletin and I mapped out my four years. And I mapped out every class that I was going to take from freshman year fall to some to senior year spring. And I would like highlight and make little notes about like, if this one is not available, I can move it here. But like, I was to the letter. I had my four-year plan set out the first week of freshman year. <laughs> That's how much of a planner I am. So I would go to like my counseling sessions and I'd already have my, my schedule and they'd be like, Okay, well, if you need anything else, let us know. <laughs> but like the the benefit of that was I felt very much in control of my education and what was happening and what that I was like clicking off, checking off all the boxes that I needed to. But I was also very tunnel vision. So I may have taken every course in the psychology department because I wasn't taking any classes anywhere else. Like I, and I didn't even take the most popular class in the psychology department, which I hear about later. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know about that one. Um, <laughs> I did a, a Spanish minor, mostly because I, as a like native Spanish speaker, I could already get some credits just by taking a test on campus. And then if I was gonna study abroad in Chile, all of those classes would count toward the minor. So then it just like kind of just like it was one or two extra classes to get the minor. So I said, OK, why not? But it was pretty much psychology that I, I lived in Jordan Hall. It's now named something else. But I <laughs> I lived in that department and that was my whole Stanford experience. Wow. OK, yeah, you take the cake. I don't think I've had anybody yeah. who's, who's quite quite the planner that, that you are. That is that is impressive. And I, so go, like, go I think like that was partly fueled by my anxiety, too, of like, I need to know I need to know what I'm doing and I need to have a plan. I need to have some control over this. And if I have a plan, then I nobody can question what I'm doing because I've already done the research and like figured it out. Yeah. And so it wasn't all healthy, but that was what I did. <laughs> In retrospect, would you do anything different? No. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would take a look at other departments in the, the bulletin and see if there's anything else that's interesting that I would like to take. I yeah. think the only time that I strayed from the psych department was for required classes that, like the core curriculum that you needed to take outside of your major. Those were the only times I ventured out. And those are really fun and interesting classes. And I very much enjoyed them. So I think if I had done a little bit more exploration, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have hurt. Wow. After Stanford, because you have tunnel vision now, right? After Stanford, was it directly into graduate school? So Again, I like hindsight is wonderful, but I'm first gen. I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I knew enough to get into college. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know enough to prepare myself to be competitive for graduate school. 
I kind of did the same thing that I did before for college. I figured out like, okay, what do I need to do? What are the boxes I need to check? I need to have research experience. Sure. Let me go and join this lab. I need to take this GRE. Okay. Let me take it. I need to figure out where I'm going to go. And so in my mind, I was doing all this alone. I wasn't asking enough questions. I wasn't talking to enough people. I did when I was, um, when I tried to talk to professors about what, what I could do, because at that point I didn't really, I knew at that point, I, I think I was convinced that I wanted to do therapy or that I wanted to do something that had applied psychology. So like interventions in, at a community level or in, in, interventions at the individual level, but there were all these options. And so there were doctorates, there were masters in social work, there was a ma masters in marriage and family therapy. There was all these ways to do that part. And I didn't really know like what the differences were or what would fit better with what I wanted. And every time I talked to a professor about it, they were a little elitist about it. And we're like, no, no, no. Like you masters doesn't matter. Like that's not, that's not, a, a, it wasn't, it didn't seem like a valuable route in the communication that I was getting from them, that it was like, if you want to do this, you get a PhD. Like that's what people do. That's what Stanford people do was the, the writing, the, the undertone. And so I was like, but I'm not really sure that I want to do research. And a lot of these programs require you to do a lot of research. I'm just like, I'm not sure that that's where they're like, no, doesn't matter. That's what you do. That's the path that you take. So then in my mind, I was like, okay, this is what these people are telling me to do. I guess I'm not going to look at master's programs at all. And I, I bought this book from the bookstore that was like all the PhD programs in the country. And I sat there and I went through each of them. And I was like, I want schools that might, that do like at least 50% of, or they have this little scale that was like a scale from zero to one to 10 on how much research and how much clinical um, training they did. So I was like, okay, I want schools that do a lot of clinical training, but I also want schools that provide funding and schools that will accept my GPA and my GRE. So I created this list of like seven random schools sprinkled across the nation that I had no business applying to. And I was like, all right, cool. These are the schools that are going to be like the magic bullet that have funding, but that also do some clinical training. And I applied and I had a couple interviews, but one of them was in Binghamton, New York, in upstate New York. I got off the plane and it was a blizzard. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done there. The one of them was like in the Midwest. And I think it was like a phone interview for that one. And like, but the, and then there the was one, the one in Binghamton, I think I went there and the person that I had applied to work with he invited me for the interview only to tell me that he's not accepting new students and he's going to retire soon, but he just wanted to chat a little bit. And I was like, what? What is this? Like, why? I don't understand. <laughs> it's very strange. Wow. And then the interview that I went with, so I applied to, there's a school in D.C. called Catholic University of America. I'd never heard of it before. And I was like, oh, this is one of my random schools. And I applied and I get there and it's the interview and these two professors were doing kind of like a good cop, bad cop thing. And it was so unnerving 
because one of them was super flat the whole time. And the other one was like smiling and a little bit warm. And it wasn't until I mentioned something about being first gen that the one who was super flat just like warmed up all of a sudden. Like they realized, oh, maybe we not, we don't need to do this like song and dance. <laughs> I was just like, what's happening? It was so weird. But I'll to say like the school at Catholic, um, they told me that they had put me on the wait list, that they were interested in having me as a student but they were waiting to see if the other student accepted or not. And then very kind um, afterward, they gave me a phone call. They said, look, the other person accepted, but we don't think that you should stop. So this is another kind of example of like somebody looking out for me, somebody kind of recognizing that there's potential and saying like, don't give up on this. So the, the woman said, you have some options. You can either like try again next year, like work on, take a a gap year, take a year off, figure out more of like what you're missing is research experience. And so get some research experience somewhere and reapply. You can apply to master's programs if you're interested in doing the therapy without doing the research, like that's another option. They're like, we have a master's program here, but it's a general psychology master's program. So it wasn't clinically oriented. Um, she's like, but what we can do is we can promise to get your application competitive competitive enough for you to get into a PhD program after you complete this master's. And you'll have our full support. You'll have like research training with us. And so we can prepare you for that next step if you decide to come here. And at that point, I was like, well, I don't have anything else going for me. And so I... I accepted and I went and true to their word, they they really got me a bunch of different research opportunities. I found volunteer opportunities that were working with the Latinx community. And so like I was able to, and that was, uh, you know, even though at the time it felt like a detour and like something that was taking me further, like just taking me longer to get to the angle. I had such a great, just like life learning and growing experience while living there. And it was like the only time that I ever lived outside of California and which is what I wanted from when I was 17. <laughs> so having that that time was so meaningful in a lot of ways outside of school and to school, because I do think that they got me to a place where I was able to apply again for um, doctorate programs. I still didn't really know what I was doing. So <laughs> at that point, I was like, well, now I'm convinced that I want to do therapy. But I'm also convinced that I don't have money and that I need funding. And I'm also convinced that I want to come back to California, that I'm done living on the East Coast. I'm done living anywhere else. And so then that time around, I was applying to a very small amount of schools. They were all programs that I was really interested in. And it was a good mixture of um, clinically focused programs. And so there's something called, um, like the PhD programs for psychology are kind of split into more research schools and then more practice schools. And um, you, like the PsyD, the Doctorate of Psychology is more of this um, clinically focused degree. Mm where the PhD, the doctorate in philosophy is a more of an academic research oriented degree. And so I was applying to schools that were offering both PsyDs and PhDs this time. And it felt more informed, but still not 
the most informed. <laughs> and it was still not master's programs because they also were like, well, no, you don't need to do that. We're training you for the doctorate. Um, yeah. And then I, I ended up getting accepted to a, a, most of the schools that I applied to. And it was between UC Santa Barbara, which was a research focused school and um, Alliant. It's called something else. Now, or no, Pepperdine. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> so I'm not going <laughs> to. So there was another school that was more, um, more clinically focused and it came down to money to money and who was going to be able to give me some scholarships, give me some research funding so that I would be able to do school without incurring more debt. Because this whole time I was just accepting loans like they were candy. And so just like, sure. I was so focused on school that I wasn't very considered. I wasn't considering very much paying back the loans that I was accruing, it was just about getting there. And then I figured out that'd be a future Lisa problem. And so it was, money wasn't a barrier, mostly because I didn't let it be. And I just got into a lot of debt. (laughs) Sorry, that was a lot of talking. (laughs) No, 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 no. Hey, this is your story. (laughs) (laughs) You, um, so you choose Santa Barbara? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I chose Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you, you want me to go more into that? <laughs> yeah, so I chose Santa Barbara. It, it was actually like I had a, a, like a, a fairly good time there. I At that point, I was also um, – so the – it's complicated. There's a lot of like subfields within psychology. And so also like the whole time that I had, I had just known about clinical psychology. And then after the master's program, I learned about counseling psychology. And so at that point I had really shifted in my framework of like, I'm not really interested in doing and working with severe mental health issues. I'm not really interested in a lot of this like pathology based treatment of people and like focusing on their diagnoses and their shortcomings. I'm very interested in understanding people's identity development. I'm very interested in understanding how people can be well and not just not be ill. I'm very interested in having a strengths focus because people have been living their life this whole time. And so they know what works and what doesn't work. And there's just something getting in the way of them accessing their own internal strengths and so my my focus was much more on like there's goodness in people yeah and I want to work in a way that highlights that and that really focuses on not just reducing distress and suffering but elevating a person's lived experience and helping them know more of themselves and so at Santa Barbara it was a a combined program Mm -hmm. it's a clinical counseling and school psychology program and I was in the counseling emphasis So I was still able to take classes that were like on assessments and um, the cognitive and personality assessments and diagnosis and like treatment methods. But I was also able to take a majority of classes on cultural factors in development, on career development, on identity development. So all of this other 
the, the bigger piece that I was more interested in, that's where the bulk of my training came in. And so that's why it was like a really good fit for how I was seeing the world at that point. You've been practicing now for how long? 11 years. At the beginning of the, of our interview, you talked about, you know, going your own, starting your own practice. You alluded to some of the challenges, right? And, and I think you're right. I, I talked about that. It's scary to go on your own, but, and, and I'm, I'm jumping a little forward because I also want to be respectful of your time because I'm, I'm fascinated by, so why did you leave and why was it important to start your own practice? This is a whole other piece of it. It's like earlier I talked about like school is not an academics and kind of career is not the only component of life. And so for me, I also knew that to be a mother, I wanted to be a parent. And so that was always kind of in my my machination of how my career was going to unfold. And so I had always had this internal, like if my, my husband and I, my partner and I could manage it, that I would be home with our child or children um, for their first kind of like formative years. And then I'd work part-time like my mom and kind of just like be around for the upbringing because it was important to me because I valued it because it was something that I felt like I would enjoy doing. And so when I started my career, like the, the child wasn't coming. <laughs> and so it was just like, I stayed in a job that I enjoyed that I liked. And so I, I did most of my careers in um, college counseling. So uh, being a therapist at a university counseling center. So working with college students. And so it was a great job. It was a good job for like having a family so that like I stayed there a really long time. And I had like had I, hopes and ideas of being able to maintain that on a part-time basis and kind of like raise my kid at home. But when I asked for that, it wasn't an option. And so I said, okay, well, if it's not an option, then I'm going to leave. And so after struggling with a few years of infertility, we were finally able to conceive and I had a child. And then I was like, okay, well, if you can't accommodate me working part-time, then I'm not going to work here anymore. And so in my plan, I was like, okay, I'm going to have these glorious five years with my child and it's going to be great. And remember how I said, I like plans and I like things to be checkboxes and that's not how parenting is. <laughs> And it's, you don't have a product when you have a child because all of your hard work you won't see for many, many years, if at all. And so it was not a good fit for my personality. Uh, it was much harder than I thought it was gonna be to maintain a sense of self and a sense of purpose, knowing that like, I didn't want my child to be my sense of purpose because that's a lot of burden for a, a little one to handle. So. I, I, and I know myself enough to know that that was not going to be a good combination. Um, and so about nine months in, I got a call from a previous workplace and they said, you know, we're hiring temporary contract people for part-time if you're interested. 
I was like, yes, yes, I'm interested. <laughs> um, and so then the last few years have been doing this part-time contract work um, at university counseling centers. And so that was, it was good. It was a good middle ground for me where yeah. I was able to do the work that I enjoyed to serve the populations that I wanted to serve and work with, to also be at home and do pickups and all of that. And it worked for a long time until it started changes were happening it started just like the climate in general of expecting so much from these institutions within the university and they're not being enough resources and they're you know some things are, are like just they're very hard to do in the way that administrators want you to do them and then it just felt like it wasn't the kind of work I wanted to be doing anymore. Um, and this whole time, when I left the when I left the first time, when my when my son was born, and then I went back nine months later. At that point, I was like, you know what? Maybe I start my own. Maybe like it's like it's time to start a private practice. And so I had been battling and questioning with whether or not to start a private practice for about six years before I finally decided to take the leap and say like, okay, I'm really done with that. I want to have more flexibility of time. I also, you know, and I, and I pause because this is something that I'm still like struggling to figure out for myself is I want to work and I want to enjoy my work and I want to find purpose in my work, but I also don't want to be overwhelmed and stressed out by mm. my work. I want to be able to not have every waking hour be accounted for. Yeah. I want to be able to say like, oh, like I can have a slow morning and maybe I'll go to the gym and then, you know, I can go and like, like go run an errand in the middle of the day. Like I want to not be stressed out, but yeah. I still want to have impact. And so for me at this point in my life and career, private practice was the way to do that because I would have full control. Yeah. And the high achiever part of me is like, oh, but you need to be doing everything all the time. And so it's <laughs> That's why it's a struggle because I'm trying to like, you know, five times fine. <laughs> it's okay. And yeah. to not really like put a bunch of pressure on like, but what's the next thing? And what's the next thing? And like, are you like writing a book? Are you doing a TikTok sensation? Like those, that's noise. It's noise that I'm trying to do my best to just kind of like say, you know, that's not necessary. It's not needed right now. Yeah. And I don't need to be in hustle mode just to be in hustle mode. Like if there's not a point to it, I don't need it. Yeah. So I'm trying to let go. Oh, I love that. I love all of that um, because I think, you know, like even, I mean, you, you, you shared through your journey, through your experience, right. About being the checkbox person and recognizing that life, life doesn't academics. You great. Yes. All of that stuff. Great. But life is different. Right. And so I appreciate, I appreciate your candidness and your honesty about that. And 
and sort of your bringing us through to making that decision that having an impact, but also not being stressed out and having more control over your time. Right. I think, um, again, that's another point. I think you and I like that definitely resonates with me because I, I felt like, like I wanted that. I wanted much more control over my time, but I wanted to continue to have some impact on students and young people. Um, so I can definitely, um, understand and, uh, you know, where you're coming from, you know, you, um, I think when we, when we first talked, because we had a conversation before getting on in, in this and, um, you had a, am I correct? You had a podcast for first gen students. Yeah. So that was one of the things that I was like in the, in between time when I was like, not working, but kind of working where I felt like I need something that's mine. I need something that's my, like, yeah. that's a purpose for me. That was something that filled that gap for, yeah. for myself who, um, called first gen journey. And so there's maybe like 20 episodes or something out of that. It still exists. I still kind of like pay to keep it alive, but I've transitioned from that to my private practice, which has the same name. So my private practice is first gen journey counseling and consulting, where I I just like have love in my heart for first gen college students for first gen professionals, because that's part of like that resonates with me and my identities. And I also like, it's such a hard place to be in to not feel like there's someone guiding you. Yeah. And to have to have to figure so much out all the time but also to have all this expectation. Yeah. And all through my my career, I've always kind of wanted to hold space for first gen students and so I've done that and like that was part of the realization of the practice is this is the community that I want to work with. This is the population that I love. This is the population that I know a lot about. Yeah. And so let me provide kind of like these niche niche services um and also like See whoever like wants to come that's a good fit. Like you don't need to be first gen, but that honor the fact that I have some expertise yeah. and really kind of step into that. Mm, I love that. <laughs> I love that. I'm glad that, that you're still paying to keep it up there. Um, because I think I think those resources are just so important. Um, right? Because he, we we struggle to find, right? that information, that, that mentor, that guide to, to kind of help us and lead us, you know, I, I think you, you know, really talked to that in your story about the mass, you know, after life, after Stanford, right. And, and going through the, and getting into a PhD program, what that was like, um, or to doctorate program, you know, before, because I, again, I want to be mindful of our time, you know, as we transition out, Lisa, if um, if you had to leave our audience and and feel free to speak to our first gen audience out there, what advice would you want to leave them with? I think so this is I think it can apply to to both when you're in college, but also when you're out is. if you have the drive and like ambition to be 
the Sonia Sotomayor or the Michelle Obama, like by all means do it, but that you don't have to live an extraordinary life for your life to have value, for your career to have value, that you're already doing it. You're already achieving, you're already living the dream and kind of being in the opportunity of the moment just where you are. So there's nowhere you have to like reach for it to be worth it or for to kind of like have it. I, I hear the phrase of like, well, it has to be worth the sacrifices. And just your existence, just the fact that you are living and interacting and being in the world and your presence as a human being is worth the sacrifice. Like there was no, there's nothing that you need to achieve to prove it to anybody. You just need to be. And I think like that's, it's something that a lot of people struggle with just being okay where they are and being okay owning that their worth is there's no conditions to their value. Mm. I love that. I love that. I couldn't think of um, a more appropriate thing to share with our audience as we, as we close out. Elisa, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for, for everything. Um, this was uh, this was good for me. This was really informative for me. Uh, I appreciate uh, you know you sharing and and then I think um, you know you you gave some really really useful powerful advice for our listeners out there. I think there's so many things that they'll be able to latch onto, and I hope that they take with them and apply in their own lives. So you know, thank you for that. Um, if you feel like sending us the bill for your hour. <laughs> I've already sent it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Elisa, thank you. Thank you again. Um, I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for having me. I really I'm I'm so grateful for for you for having this space for yeah. for students, for professionals, for everybody listening to it, that it's it is such a gift that you are giving of your own kind of like time and tears i'm sure too of being able to provide this and it's it's wonderful oh thank you thanks for including me in this absolutely absolutely um this concludes another episode the way to college podcast uh make sure you subscribe rate follow do all of that stuff and uh thank you to our guests today thank you to our listeners out there and and please share the podcast with one person share the podcast with one person and and, uh, I'd uh, appreciate that. We'll see you next time. Thank you and bye-bye.